Introducing Carvana Value Tracker, where you can track your car's value over time and learn what's driving it. It might make you excited. Whoa, didn't know my car was valued this high. It might make you nervous. Uh-oh, market's flooded. My car's value just dipped 2.3%. It might make you optimistic. Our low mileage is paying off. Our value's up. And it might make you realistic. Mm, car prices haven't gone up in a couple weeks. Maybe it's time to sell. But it will definitely make you an expert on your car's value. Carvana Value Tracker. Visit Carvana.com to start tracking your car's value today. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is July the 9th in 2023, and my guest is Primavera de Filippi. Primavera is a legal scholar, internet activist, and artist whose work focuses on the blockchain, peer production communities, and copyright law. Primavera is the creator of the concept of coordinations, an alternative and critique to Balaji Srinivasan's The Network State. This concept was introduced at Zuzalu during a multi-day event that, I was very, that I'm very sad that I have missed. So that's why I wanted to catch up with Primavera and to talk about it and discuss coordinations, her critique of network states and understand the broader politics, philosophy, economics of governance, innovation, and your thinking specifically, Primavera, in this space. So I'm very excited to have you on the show. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, just, just on that, like, I am not the creator, uh, I guess, of uh, the concept of coordination. That was a collective effort and uh, was co-created, in fact, by um, a small community. Who are the other co-creators that you want to give sh shout out to? Um, I mean, pretty much all the people that were uh, part of the Zuzalu uh, meeting with Jessica Schingler, Michel Bowens, a lot of my PhD students that, that I also brought there, uh, Marshad Manan, Sofia Kossar. Some actually people from Zuzalu, Orishimoni, and uh, Olke Brahman. So I don't want to give the name of everyone, but uh, there, it is clearly a collective effort. Yeah, fantastic. Similar experience to mine. I felt like Zuzalu gave me loads of inputs pushed in different directions, and it was like a collaborative, emergent set of ideas and content that spawned out of it. Primavera, what's your story? How did you end up doing what you do now? My story... Uh... My story from, let's say, the, the blockchain starts in 2013 when I decided to focus most of my research on blockchain technology and especially with the advent of Ethereum, I realized that this was becoming the main focus of my life, not just of my research. And at the same time, I also come from the communities of like open source, open content, creative commons, uh, commoning and so forth. So I've always been very interested in looking at the blockchain as an opportunity for improving these practices of peer-to-peer uh, -peer production and common-based peer production and trying to see whether this technology could actually help us move beyond the common tragedy of the commons that is oftentimes encountered in those communities or that is somehow used as a criticism of why those communities could not work. And to me, like one of my very strong 
focus of research is to try and understand how do we move away from the tragedy of the commons and how do we actually create common-based communities and infrastructures that are actually thriving through collaboration as opposed to leading to the free-riding problem and so forth. It seems to me you've been very early in the Ethereum community, is that right? Yeah, I was there before the launch. <laughs> I saw Ethereum come to bring it to some extent. So in what ways would you say has the development of Ethereum influenced you and your thinking? And in which ways have you made a contribution or influenced the direction that Ethereum was going? Well, it definitely made an influence to me to the extent that before Ethereum, my, my, my focus on blockchain was mostly on like the regulation and the legal issue related to fi financial applications. And then, of course, like I was very excited by all those alternative blockchain, uh, you know, name coin and, and so forth. So Ethereum, uh, Ethereum convinced me to drop everything else and to just do my research only and exclusively on blockchain. Uh, mostly because I, I thought that if this being, if, if any of the things that are being described are likely to happen, uh, this is just the most interesting thing ever. And, uh, um, I, I want to be part of it. So um, it clearly like, uh, completely shift the focus of my research. And then at the same time, I think I've been at least from, uh, from my little uh, academic world, <laughs> um, I've been trying to also shape the thinking around, you know, blockchain governance and like, how do we actually think beyond just the pure on-chain mechanism design? How do we take into account the off-chain uh, question and so forth? Uh, I also created a, a non-profit organization, Koala, back in 2015, which is still operating and running and uh, whose main objective is to gather together lawyers and engineers and researchers and whoever else. Uh, but mostly like people that are very technical, but interested in the legal questions. And then people that are very legal, but that also understand and care about the technological uh, underpinnings. And then together trying to uh, approach specific questions, especially in terms of how do we create uh, a proper interface or how do we bridge between the legal system and the blockchain systems uh, in ways that are actually accommodating of the features of uh, blockchain, blockchain technologies and Web3, as opposed to trying to just apply and enforce uh, existing regulation on, on a technology that is actually providing different opportunities as well, if we understand the, the technological guarantees that it provides. Can you explain what are the commons? What is the tragedy of the commons? What are the challenges? in governance of yeah. the commons. So maybe first we can start by saying what are commons in the first place and why do they matter? Yeah, I mean, so there is like the very broad category uh, of commons, which is basically resources that are uh, available to all, where all can be either the public at large or it can be like a specific community, but things that are available to the people in a particular domain. Um, there is the, the broad broad, which is like including all those public goods. So things that are non-rival and non-excludable, meaning things that you cannot uh, prevent people from accessing. And at the same time, uh, things that the consumption of the one thing by one person doesn't preclude the consumption of the same thing by others. And this is usually referring to those resources that are just very, like 
non-rival in the sense that, for instance, like water. Uh, I mean, of course, water can become uh, rival to the extent that we start contaminating our world. Uh, the air is this kind of common. So all those resources that are just there and you can consume as many as you want. But of course, at some point you can deplete them or you can harm them in some way. So these, these type of resources where they are not subject to private property and therefore exclusionary practice by one actor, but they are held in common and therefore they also need to be managed uh, in common by either by the public at large, by society or by uh, a community specifically. And what is the tragedy of the commons? Yeah, so the tragedy of the commons goes to say that uh, because people are mostly accounting for their private utility functions, uh, meaning like what is their own cost and what is their own benefits, and they don't necessarily, or they don't account equally of the externalities that might emerge from their behaviors. There is a tendency for private agents to either overconsume a common uh, because the overconsumption means that I'm taking more out of it. And of course, there are some external negative externalities because all of a sudden, if everyone were to overconsume, there is no time for the commons to replete and to, uh, to, to maintain, to become sustainable and eventually gets depleted. But because every individual agent is considering its own benefit and its own cost, uh, more importantly than the cost of the, and the benefits of the community, then a strictly utilitarian perspective will say that every individual actor has a tendency to overconsume and underprovide because basically free riding. Because I know that other people are providing to the commons, I am tempted to provide less because anyhow, the common will be sustainable because other people will also provide. But of course, that only works if there is a few people that do that. But if everyone starts engaging in overconsumption and underprovision, then all of a sudden, the, this is the worst outcome for all because the commons actually gets depleted uh, and no one, no one can gain anything from it in the long term. And therefore, this, this even creates more of a short-term incentive to get as much as early as possible. And so the theory goes that in this very um, economic utility function maximizing approach, a commons, unless properly managed with specific system of monitoring sanctions, etc., will lead to this kind of long-term depletion because every agent wants to maximize their short-term benefits. Exactly. The classical example is like the Fisher's Pond right, and different fishers that could benefit from it. So if everyone would take sort of enough to feed themselves and their family, it would be sustainable. But because tomorrow is uncertain, right, and you might want to like hoard or hold more just so, you know, it's easier for you or you can sell something, you have an incentive to fish more, right? But everyone has that, right? And because everyone is acting in their self-interest and fishing more than they need, the common resource gets depleted because, and that's unsustainable for everyone, right? So a individually rational decision leads to a collectively worse outcome, right? Exactly. So that's the tragedy of the commons. What are, in your reading, the main approaches to solve the challenges or the tragedy of the commons? Basically, the, the point is how do we realign incentives by 
internalizing those externalities. There are two common ways uh, that are usually adopted. Uh, the first one is, well, the best way to, to fix the problem is to um, make sure that everyone bears the fullness of the externalities that they create in the resources, which is essentially turning a commonly held resource into a privately held resources. And that means that through, through private property, then not only I will incur all the cost of, of overconsumption, but also I get the possibility of exclude others from consuming my resources. And in this way, the theory goes, we will all make sure that these resources is sustainable. The other one is we, we assign it to a public entity. So if we believe that collectively the free riding incentives are too large, then this becomes this kind of like public goods, et cetera, problems. And therefore, there needs to be a public authority that is in charge of the of these resources, uh, which is usually for those type of resources that are uh, either non-rival and or non-excludable, where it's actually difficult to prevent someone from accessing it. This is, for instance, the case of, uh, you know, air or national security or public infrastructure, lighting in the streets and so forth. So there are some things that, uh, by their by their very nature are difficult to exclude, so it's difficult to turn them into private property, and so they get assigned into the public sector, and so we have a government that that takes care and makes sure that those resources are provided for and are not overconsumed if they are rival. Um, and uh, and then the third way, uh, which I think is the most interesting in, in my side, is actually ensuring that while maintaining the resources as commons, uh, we also come up with proper governance structures which will modify the incentive for free riding, either by adding some incentive to contribute, either by uh, creating sanctioning mechanism, by having a proper monitoring system that will make sure that we can de detect the defector and so forth. So without necessarily going back to either the private sector market system or the public sector to maintain this commons-based approach to organizing those resources, but managing them in a manner that actually preserves them. That's why I think it's really important to have that discussion when we're talking about network states or coordinations or governance, right? So it can be only online or also physical. Because in one way or the other, you need to understand kind of these incentive structures that are at play and different mechanisms to solve them. Yeah. And essentially, it's about changing the payoff structure, right? Uh, basically, how do we, if the problem of the tragedy of the common is that externalities are not being properly accounted for, then how do we internalize those externalities? And the internalization is either by creating uh, sanction for the people that defect or by creating uh, property rights in order to create incentives for people to take care of their own property. Yeah. One big influence on the field was Eleanor Ostrom, right? So I'm sure that's also been, it seems to me it was also an influence on you and on, on you and many discussions that, that I hear or pick up within the Ethereum ecosystem mm -hmm. around public goods, right? And polycentric yeah. ways of doing governance. And what's interesting about Eleanor Ostrom, so economists and political 
economists have kind of tended to simplify the problem into like a market-based solution and a state-based solution, right? So the state-based solution is kind of the Leviathan strategy. You have like one single owning entity, right? If you kind of have a very statist approach, very totalitarian approach, or at least you have something like eminent domain in case like there is no decision that can be made or there's like a gridlock or something. And the other is kind of the market-based or the proprietarian strategy where you have kind of property rights and then you can trade, right? So if there's an externality happening, you want to establish liability, you want to know who's harmed, right? So this way you create an incentive for the individual actors to internalize externalities. And then Eleanor Ostrom comes along and is saying, well, it's not that simple, right? Hey, these two approaches, sort of the market-based or you could say the government or public authority-based approaches, these aren't really what people do in practice, right? So people imagine how it would look like under a perfect market or under a perfect government, but that's not how things really happen. In practice, if you look at the practice of tribes and of, sort of any sorts of civilizations, people comments, there's this plurality of different strategies. There's like norms. There is, you know, some private property in some things, but in others. There is some subtle mechanisms or incentives that you design. So can you talk a bit about Elena Ostrom and what you think are the most important things to be aware of when we're talking about governing the commons, about network state and coordinations? Yeah, I want to distinguish between uh, Vincent Ostrom and Elena Ostrom, which, of course, were an amazing couple of academics, where Vincent Ostrom introduced most of the research on polycentricity. And then Elinor Hallstrom focused more on the question of uh, how do we govern commons through a polycentric approach. I think both of them are extremely relevant, relevant uh, in the context of coordination, network state, and so forth, where the notion of polycentric governance is to recognize that uh, things can actually be governed correctly without necessarily having this uh, Leviathan or this centralized entity that is coordinating all those actors, provided that there is a common or some alignment of incentives, uh, there is a common objective, and there is a commonly agreed uh, set of skills for those uh, actors to, to coordinate themselves, which kind of appears in a somewhat decentralized or bottom-up fashion, um, even though, of course, different actors might have different powers over different domains. So you can have this kind of different jurisdiction or overlapping jurisdiction. But there is an understanding that if we all agree to a specific set of norms, things will be better for everyone. And so you have this kind of like actors with different types of influence that no one has absolute power over each other, but everyone has some degree of influence. And so together, they identify this kind of epicenter, this equilibrium, by exercising those different forces and influence in order to actually hold on to, this, to the governance of this polycentric system. Could we try to tie it back kind of to a couple of examples that you're familiar with, right? So I'm thinking of kind of the Ethereum world, where there's kind of plurality of different approaches, and we talked about coordinations already. How could that look like in practice for communities like Zuzalu or for, you know, different um, groups within the ecosystem wants to 
you know, start a coordination or a network state. So let's introduce the, the concept of uh, coordination network states, which is uh, the work that we've been mostly developing in the last, uh, I guess, a while quite now, at least like six months or maybe more soon. Anyway, um, so the, the concept of coordination, I would, I would dare to say, goes one step further. Uh, because Ostrom, um, Ostrom has this vision, and I think it's a strong assumption in the, in, 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 in the research, is that uh, there needs to be this constant system of monitoring and sanctioning, uh, because otherwise free riding will happen. Within the coordination network state system, we have introduced an additional component, which I think is potentially applicable more generally, but I think it's particularly relevant in the context of network state, uh, which is the concept of what we have called the interweaving or entanglement. And what it means is that if you have a set of actors that are individual actors, like fishermen, and of course, every day I need to make a decision how much fish I'm going to take out of the pond. So there is the, the in immediate short-term reflection. Well, the more I take, the better I, I am. There is the question of like to which extent I'm going to be sanctioned or identified as a defector. And then there is the long-term question, which is, well, to which extent is this pond going to be depleted? And so maybe I should leave some fish in so that they can reproduce. Uh, but this remains always an individual assessment. Now, the, with the interweaving or entanglement, uh, what happens is that if actors, individual actors, which essentially are communities in the context of network states, if individual actors actually find ways to entangle themselves, what this means is that, let's take a very simple example. If you have like companies, uh, so you have group, of individuals that have, you know, their own utility function as well. And all of a sudden, when a company interacts on the market, it needs to, you know, figure out what's the best profitable strategy in order for the company to thrive and to survive. Now, imagine that a set of companies were to do uh, a mutual system of uh, stock exchange. I'm going to give 10% of my shares to one actor, 10% to another actor's, and I'm going to get 10% of each, right? So all of a sudden, now when I'm acting on the market, uh, I don't see those, those other entities as competitors. In fact, when I'm interacting, I might actually try to find ways to also support them uh, because we are now entangled. We are in the same boat. If they succeed, I also succeed. And if I succeed, they also succeed because of this kind of blood sharing that has happened uh, within the corporate structures. So the same can be done, of course, in the, in, the same is done often uh, in the blockchain space where you have like token exchanges, whether those are governance tokens, whether those are economic tokens and so forth. And so the, the interesting thing here is to think about where we're trying to create uh, a structure, like a, a transnational global structure where multiple entities become part of the same network state or coordination or however it's called, then instead of just creating systems of monitoring and sanctioning in order to ensure that everyone is actually abiding by a specific set of rules, uh, the idea here is to actually identify ways in which you can do this exchange of equity, 
where equity, of course, will depend on what is the nature of the community. In the case of a company, it, those are stocks. Uh, in the case of, uh, of a DAO, it's going to be tokens. In the case of different communities, it might be different things. It could be people, it could be like places, it could be whatever we design that will incentivize these, these entanglement. And therefore, make sure that defection is actually no longer part of the payoff structure. Because in fact, defecting will immediately harm yourself. If you defect against the other people that you have been entangled with. And quite to the opposite, it, there is a now a positive payoff structure for coordinating and for cooperating uh, because all of a sudden, I, my, like, my future is now entangled with your future, which is essentially what defined a nation uh, in the more traditional sense where the nation is when you have people that share both a cultural past, but also that have a sense that they are sharing a common future oftentimes because they are on the same territory. So when we're decentralizing the territory, then how do we recreate this sense of sharing a common future? It is through entanglement. And, um, and to this entanglement, which, which oftentimes comes with like putting resources in commons, then might lead to some novel structure for common-based management, which I think is more powerful because it requires less monitoring because you're actually injecting those positive incentives for cooperation directly into the payoff structure. Yeah, I highly sympathize with the idea of entanglement. In fact, I was thinking of along similar lines uh, many times. So the idea is that you're more flexible, more peer-to-peer. -peer. You can have tokens in each other's ventures and equities. You incentivize to cooperate. And that can also be based on smart contracts. So that's something that blockchain technology opens up. Doesn't that, or wouldn't you agree, aren't tokens, isn't the blockchain kind of a stateless peer-to-peer -peer way of transacting? Isn't that in a way, isn't like tokenization in a way a proprietarian approach? Doesn't that make sort of more cooperative coordinations, entanglement, these ideas easier for us and to monitor? Isn't a more polycentric approach downstream in that way from a kind of a more proprietarian approach? Yes, so the blockchain is interesting with regard to, to the Ostrom uh, assumption that you need uh, monitoring and sanctioning. When you enter into the blockchain system, you have new opportunities because instead of uh, this kind of constant and ongoing monitoring, you actually have uh, exposed verifiability, meaning you, don't, you actually don't need to monitor all the time because everything is traced recorded and auditable, you can maintain confidentiality of, uh, of information while because it is hashed, you do commit that whenever people will ask you to verify it, uh, you cannot change the information. So this, this is an interesting alternative to the ongoing monitoring um, that Ostrom would require otherwise. And then same thing, instead of sanctioning, you actually can have ex ante automation, right? Because all of a sudden you don't need to sanction people if you actually make a system that defection is no longer possible because of the code-based enforcement or automation of, uh, of the system. So on that, on that level, I think blockchain introduced specific novel features uh, that also can be transposed into Ultram common-based framework. 
and I think which makes it easier to to implement. And then with regard to the uh, to which extent does it help with the entanglement? I think it it's really about uh, it provides those those new types of equities, uh, which through DAOs and whatnot, which doesn't require the construction of a private company, but actually you know arguably depending on the DAOs, but uh, a DAO is is actually pretty much a common-based resource that is held in common by the various token holders or governors and whatnot. So the, the DAO is actually an interesting structure that, at least in theory, is, uh, is trying to implement this concept of common-based governance, uh, which is not inherently market-based, uh, which is definitely not public-oriented, uh, but actually sits into this communal and community-based uh, governance system. Can we, um, so I think we jumped ahead a bit quickly from into like network states and coordinations. Can you talk a bit about your reading of Balaji Srinivasan's version of the network states and what's your critique with it that led you up to, led you to and some others to develop the idea of coordinations? Yeah, my critique is essentially that I had such very high expectation uh, when reading the book because I'm very interested in the notion of network states and I think I was a little bit disappointed in my expectation to the extent that I found that this was not novel enough uh, but also very, very much oriented through the more startup and uh, market-based approach. And, and I would say what worries me, if there is a worry, is that it really focused on this concept of exit. And I think today the, the, the world in general and especially like the global geopolitical system actually suffer from too much fragmentation and difficulties from actually coordinating at the global level in order to address challenges which can only be dealt through uh, interdependencies through accepting and recognizing those interdependencies. And the more we actually adopt an exit-based approach, then the more it's going to be complex to engage into this coordinated uh, global scale management of the common resources that is our planet. The main issue that I see with uh, biology conceptualization of a network state is, first of all, there is this uh, replication of the state. <laughs> which is, well, we, we don't like states, but uh, let's create new states, <laughs> uh, which might have a slightly different governance structure, which is more centralized, in fact. But, uh, but in the end, we're just recreating a state, and therefore we need to obtain diplomatic recognition from other states uh, so that we can exit from any existing states that we live in. But this exit-based governance, I think, is, uh, is dangerous because it's actually creating more competition amongst existing states and network states and amongst network states. And so we are increasing the plurality, which is great, but this plurality is actually a source of increased competition as opposed to being a source of cooperation and interdependencies. To me, what I'm more interested in when, when I'm thinking about network states and the concept of coordination network state is an attempt at actually providing these alternative recipe uh, because I think there can be many types of network states and I will be concerned if people that uh, refer to the terminology network state 
only associate this with Balaji descriptions. Uh, I think Balaji's type of network state, of course, have a place to stay. Uh, but this is not the only ones. And I would hope that we can be more innovative and creative in the conceptualization of alternative types of network states, which are not oriented towards these exit-based competitive dynamics, but rather on this interdependence and actually not just recognizing that there are global interdependencies, but also embracing them and almost like augmenting them because it is by increasing the entanglement and increasing the interdependencies that we might actually reach a level in which we are incentivized to coordinate and we are incentivized to support one another because we realize that we are all in the same planet and it is only through collaboration and cooperation that we might actually find a way to collectively manage this planet. Yeah. I think we have one major agreement in the critique of Balaji and one probably a disagreement. Try to entangle it a bit to put the two side by side. Let's put it this way. Also, I do like the idea of exit. I don't like the idea of more states. And I generally don't like the idea of state centrism or statism. Right. So I think even with more cooperation, I think the status approach and like nation states cooperating is not solving comments. I think it's doing the opposite. It's doing worse than it otherwise would. But I also don't want to exit to repeat the mistakes and create more like states. I don't like the idea of monopoly on violence. And I don't also don't like, you know, the alternatives that he's providing with El Salvador, UAE or Singapore. I'm more attracted to something like a special economic zone model like Prospera or Nkwashi or Zanzibar or in Nigeria, where you like get autonomy from a government to have like a zone. And within that zone, sort of you have a deal with the government, you pay taxes and to the government. So it's a partnership. But at the same time, you have a degree of legal autonomy. Maybe to entangle this, can you say why you think that or my idea is that competition through exit like that would create stronger incentives for governments to behave better. That's kind of the core idea. And maybe you can, so maybe you can untangle a bit why you disagree with that. Yeah. My disagreement comes from the fact that if you actually fully exit, you're pretty much abandoning the state. And the problem is that you, if you abandon the state, you create your new state you need to all of a sudden recreate all the, all, all the infrastructure that the state is providing. And this is nothing that anyone wants to deal with. So it's, it's very easy to criticize the state because, of course, they are not perfect. But they are doing things that literally no one wants to do, <laughs> which is providing public infrastructure, national securities, and so forth. Those are not easy things to, to provide. And to me, uh, the way in which I like to conceptualize it is that um, the states are the landlords. And uh, as landlords, they have to deal with all the stuff that is inherently territorially bound, uh, which is public infrastructure, national safety, and so forth. Like really the stuff that is bound to the territory and cannot be managed outside of that territory. At the same time, there are many things that today the state is uh, providing that are not bound to the territory. And in fact, we are seeing more and more the private sector also entering into those domains, 
the obvious example, of course, is welfare, is education, etc. So all those things today is basically we have two choices. Uh, is usually either uh, the public sector or the private sector, right? Both of them have their own pro and cons, I would say, where the the public sector is trying to be this kind of democratic compromise of making sure that everyone is happy, but actually no one is happy because <laughs> no one gets exactly what they want, but collectively we get an average of what the 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 nation wants. Uh, and the private sector is actually very fine-tuned to specific needs. It's more customized to what specific people want, but it's also ignoring uh, the people that are not their, uh, their uh, consumers. And what is interesting is that there is this middle ground. And I think a lot of the stuff that today uh, are done that are not inherently bound to the territory um, but also that benefit from having some kind of more common-based approach, meaning that the interest is not maximization of profits, but the interest is actually achieving a common good as opposed to a public good. Those are things that probably will be better dealt with through a network state coordination type of system. Um, but I'm very concerned in getting... But the, so Balaj is basically saying the private sector should go all the way down until the territory. And we should manage those territories as private uh, entities, um, which really concerns me because we all know that markets are great and market failures are everywhere. Um, and I would be very concerned to observe what market failures at the level of <laughs> a network state looks like. But of course, the public sector has its own failures. What I think we, do, we didn't have enough uh, exploration and experimentation with is the use of the polycentric common-based governance structure in order to manage those communities and the resources that those communities decide to put in common in a way that is neither public-based centralized Leviathan or private-based markets. Uh, because both of those have specific, like, the, the public sector is politically oriented. The private sector is profit oriented. And can we actually have something that is community oriented and experiment and take the opportunities of experimenting with actually new governance structure, which cannot be done in the public sector because the stakes are too high uh, and the, the rigidity, the, the inertia is huge, uh, which also cannot be done via a purely private system because private systems have their own incentive and payoff structure, which is essentially about uh, profit maximizing and utility function maximizing on an individual level. And when we actually identify those communities that do want to share resources in commons, do want to actually entangle themselves in order to share a future together, and then what kind of common-based governance structure can we come up with in order to manage those resources? and in order to create some form of coordination among those individuals independently of the territory. And, and I think that's the interesting part, is that until now, we always had those nations which are bound to a particular territorial boundaries. And therefore, yes, there is like a lot of uh, cultural uh, mixture that, that happened because people are interacting with them constantly on the same territory. And there is this 
a conception that we are all in together, we are all part of the same future because we are bound to const- constantly interact with one another. And now that we have like new technologies and, you know, higher transportation rates, um, both on digital and physical, then I think there are those new cultures and those new communities that are emerging, which do want to share a future. And to some extent, they share a short past because obviously those are very recent developments. But those actors, if they choose to untangle and interwind themselves so that they really commit to this shared future, I think we'll be able to deserve their own needs, perhaps in a better way than both the market and the public sector. Yeah, I do think where we align um, or where I just have a stronger critique of governments or of states where we disagree is um, so states to me are monopoly providers, right? They're just literally saying, hey, when it comes to national security or education or citizenship or passes, I'm the only one who's allowed to do that. Right. And I contrast that with pluralism. Right. And pluralism can be like for profit, private sector, it can also be nonprofit. And it's more flexible for these entanglement mechanisms. That's kind of my mind space. Right. So the non monopolistic approach is not only like the profit maximizing version of it, it's open to do all sorts of things. Right. And my critique with monopoly providers is, and I think basic economics is basically correct, that monopoly tend to get worse over time you have a lower lower quality at a higher price point right and i think they fail many people and if they fail there is no possibility to fix it right so in a more pluralistic environment where some customers are left behind their needs are not met you can fix it right you can do it through a for-profit approach or for a non-profit approach would you agree thus far with everything i said yeah yeah, because if you follow that line of thought, then governments or states are failing us in their provision of what it would mean to be a landlord. The biggest example of that to me is immigration. People are trapped in environments with very bad governments that are holding them back to go to other places. Exit isn't necessarily from like north to south, but there's millions of people in the developing world that could leave and live a much better life somewhere else and they would be willing and capable to do it and to work for it. So, and I think that's the real tragedy and the bigger exit should really be from places with very bad governments, authoritarianism, political repression, places where you lack basic human rights to places where if they can live a better life and where they have human rights, isn't that a kind of access that you could endorse? Um, so, sorry, I think there's a distinction between saying that people should be able, individuals should be able to exit states, which is authoritarian and oppressive or just that they don't like. And then I think what you're talking about is not the, the freedom of exit, is the freedom of entry, right? Uh, is that... Also an exit from something. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think we all agree that everyone should be able to exit a country if they wish to do so. I think the more challenging question is to which extent should they be able to enter and become citizens and residents in a different country. This is a very different issue. Of course, if you exit and you don't have anywhere to enter, then yes, it, it becomes difficult to exit. But at the same time, I think like immigration law are terrible in, in many countries. 
but they're also based on a particular uh, premises that there needs to be uh, a flow, a regulation flow. I think the problem today is that we're actually delegating only to the public sector and the private sector, in fact, because companies can sponsor visas. Individuals cannot sponsor another individual visa. So I think the issue and, and the opportunities also, to which extent, if we create those new entities, which are in fact non-territorial entities of uh, coordination network states, uh, could those entities uh, sponsor visas on a particular territory? And I think this is actually a very interesting approach uh, to solving this problem. I, I don't think just opening, uh, fully opening the the frontiers will ever be a viable option. Good luck convincing any state to do that. But actually introducing new ways to sponsor individuals where a company sponsor people because those people will work for them. And a coordination network state could create partnership with specific states and perhaps decides to sponsor specific citizens, not because they're going to work for them, but just because they are great citizens and because they, are, they have been vouched by this particular coordination network state which happen to have a specific partnership with one, two, three, or hundreds of territories. And so in this way, you, you actually enable more mobility without necessarily having to extract territory from an existing nation state and then claiming this territory and then having to pretty much reproduce the same rules because then who decides who gets into your micro, micro nation state territory? Once you created it, right, you will still have some kind of immigration rules. And so how are your immigration rules better than the existing nation states rules? I don't know. But I think the possibility of actually having visa sponsorships that is done not just by existing legal institutions uh, such as governments or companies, but by those new entities, I think is an interesting approach that definitely should be explored. In the same way as you have those uh, autonomous economic zone in which, which could be partnership with network states uh, that don't want, in fact, to get their own land, but wants to create partnership with existing landowners, which are the existing states, uh, you could have also political agreements. In fact, the interesting question is to which extent can those network state coordination be perceived as international actors that can enter into international relationships with existing states because they are seen at a similar degree, just like we have those international organizations. So is there room for actually creating a new international actor uh, which does not necessarily need to have a particular territory, which doesn't even need to be recognized as a state? but nonetheless is recognized as an actor that is capable of international relationship. And then you can have very interesting partnerships that are created amongst those coordination network states and existing states. Yeah, highly sympathetic to that notion. Also generally to the idea that focus on something that you can fix, right? Something that's more like vertical rather than horizontal, sort of providing like a full stack of a new like jurisdiction is often way too much and it's easier or better just to focus on like a key moral innovation like longevity or you mentioned immigration so that's some of the discussions we had at Suzalu also with the Montenegrin government that Suzalu or any coordinations or network states 
could have the right to issue visas that could be approved by governments, which would allow to solve major problems along the lines that we just talked about. At the same time, I think all these approaches are valuable. And I think it's a bit of a misunderstanding that sort of the proprietarian approach only works for like richer people, right? So when people imagine you have like a more private city or like a new jurisdiction with sort of more innovative or permissive regulations to do business, people think like Dubai and that's for rich people and just a lot degree of a tax haven. But you know, one really interesting charter city in Honduras, um, the founder wants to prove that liberty works best for poor people. Right. So he's providing a gated community that's affordable for poor people in one of the most dangerous parts of the country, providing basic security service and affordable housing. Been there two times and it delivers on the product and it's great. And there's like more than 100 people living in there. But who is providing the infrastructure? Well, he's the landlord, right? He's providing the infrastructure. Who is he? Is it like the government or he's a municipality? A private entity. Right. So he's the sole owner and his business model is he charges rent. Most of the other things or services or infrastructure are done by a free market. So education you can do yourself or go to a school outside of the jurisdiction or consume other services. And the model is more like a shopping mall, right? If you don't like it, you can leave or go somewhere else. These are the rules that the landlord puts down, which are also not very restrictive or not very authoritarian because then you could just leave if you don't like it. I mean, I, I agree. Of course, you can you can create yeah, different models. And it's fair to say that what he's providing is better than living in dire poverty and in very high danger for your life, which is the problem that he addressed in that region in Honduras where people were lacking this basic security. Yeah, let me push back a little bit on that because to me, like, so either you have like this kind of like deus ex machina where you have this benevolent actor which is providing resources uh, and housing and support to to people. Uh, or you have uh, an actual common base management and structure. Um, the problem is is actually very simple. I think is that um, if you have people that are very wealthy, most likely they will want to engage into very little taxation uh, because they don't need it. They just don't need the services that will be provided to a community because they can they can engage into a market system and just get like private insurance for whatever they need. That means that, of course, people that are less wealthy can also join that community, but they will have very little support because of the lower taxation rate. Uh, they can also create their own communities, which is like highly taxed. But if you only have like very poor people that are part of this community, the tax will be very low despite being very high. They will collect very little amounts. And so there is there is little to basically there is little to redistribute if it's a community of poor people. Uh, and so the complexity is like to which extent can you create a system in which you have a proper redistribution so that the people that are the most wealthy chooses to actually engage into a taxation system in order to redistribute to the people that are less wealthy. And to me, this is this is something that I would I would still like to see. Uh, I'm yeah. not saying it's impossible, I'm saying it's unlikely. Uh, because, of course, if you can afford private services, why would you pay for something you don't, you don't use? And I think many of those communities so far have been discussed mostly in this idea of, like, let's exit and let's create our own system. Uh, but this system, in fact, lacks 
one of the most important things, which is the whole infrastructure of uh, redistribution and taking care of people that have less. Yeah. I mean, the idea is, and I'm not going to try to convince you, and again, you can always default to, we know we need to try everything out, but what if 5% of tax is enough to provide the public services that you need as a community instead of you know, 30 or whatever it's the case in mainstream jurisdictions? I see these solutions on the ground every day. There's much cheaper solutions for healthcare, right? I have friends who have like telehealth doctor appointments. and These work perfectly well in these communities. They're able to afford it for a very cheap price, for a much cheaper price than like a government-sponsored healthcare system, right? Because that carries with it a lot of bloat and inefficiency, right? So you don't have to believe the claim, but the kind of proof point is then, hey, can we make that work with 5% taxes instead of like 30 uh, absolutely. And I'm not at all uh, defending the efficiency of the state. <laughs> I think those are highly inefficient, but, but there are reasons why they are inefficient. And hopefully we can, we can fix that. Um, I mean, I'm completely open. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm very, I'm my, my, my world, my main interest is let's explore alternative ways in which we can do those things. So I'm completely open to that. My concern, and I think it's a legit concern, uh, which is not unsurmountable. I'm sure there are ways to, to, to bypass these, these other type of, and in, I, mean, I don't know if it's inefficiency, but this other issue, uh, which is, can we actually create distance where, but, uh, but people that are highly wealthy and people that are less wealthy, uh, find a common ground in which it, people recognize it does make sense to actually redistribute wealth because this is going to create a stronger coordination. And this is where I think the entanglement becomes extremely relevant, which is, well, if I'm, you know, like, I think families are a good example. Uh, you know, you will always support your family members. Well, not always, but most of the time, because you're entangled, right? Like, this is like brotherhood, <laughs> siblings. So can we actually create some kind of entanglement also amongst those new types of coordination, network state, et cetera? Uh, and this entanglement, I think, will lead to this natural desire of support and redistribution because you want to make sure that your people are also as well off as possible because their well-being is also your well-being because it will create a better nation or a better society more generally. Yeah, there's so much we uh, agree on, too. And I think well, my goal is for this movement, network stage coordinations. I want to be involved in whatever people are providing or innovating on to improve governance and exactly what you said, sort of um, create better ways to live together, better ways to cooperate, better ways to manage comments. So I think sort of from the beginning of the discussion, what is the tragedy of the comments? We both, we all face the same problem and there's different approaches sort of the polycentric approach, the proprietarian approach, and sort of giving some amount of public authority. These are all things that are questions that we've been working on as, a civil as civilizations for thousands of years and yet haven't solved it. So I think we need all the brain power in the world and try many different approaches, anything that increases kind of the pluralism of different approaches is probably a good thing. And that's my goal for this movement also to keep learning from each other. Mavera, do you want to talk a bit more about the discussions you had at Zuzalu and kind of draw some conclusions that are interesting for people that want to be part of this movement or are attracted to it to contribute? 
sort of how can they start? What are the things to point out at? And where do you see this going? Yeah, maybe before we close, I, I would love to share the recipe because in the same way as like Balaji has given us this uh, seven-step recipe for the Balaji network state, we have, we have come up with our own recipe for the network state coordination, um, which is also seven steps, which is, um, so first of, first of all, uh, build or join an existing community ideally like a community of kinship. So similar to the idea of like highly aligned individual, even though in the context of a coordination network state, it's not necessarily the alignment in terms of our objective, but it's really like the kinship. It's the fact that you feel closely related and like there is this feeling of closeness and desire of community. Even though alignment might not be necessarily at the level of like uh, what do we want to do but really it's the alignment is the meta alignment of what kind of society do we want to live in uh, so that's step one either you join it if you find one or you build it if you don't find one number two once you have joined this particular community then the second step is to go and identify all around the world other communities which are also somehow related or which resonate, right? Which resonate with the same values, with the same principle, with the same alignment. Um, and this is at the community level. So the, the goal is to identify who are the other communities in the world that we resonate with. Number three, engaging with those communities in order to support one another. Because if I realize that if I find another community that has that is promoting the same societal vision, then of course I want to support because in fact, if they win, I win, right? And so by identifying those communities, then you can also identify how each one of those communities can support each other in a bilateral or multilateral way. But really, okay, I have some surplus. There is things that I have and I don't need in my community. I know that you need those. I'm going to give them to you. I want to support you. And then you maybe have another type of surplus and you're going to give it to another community that needs that, etc. Then number four is uh, all of Sudan, there is this very powerful tool, which is naming. All of Sudan, both internally and externally, this group, this network of communities might be identified as something, right? There is like, there is a new collective entity that emerge and this emerge through naming so like once you have like you have one zuzalu it's just one zuzalu but once you start having a lot of different zuzalus uh, around the world then and they are all interacting with one another and they all have obviously share the same societal vision and so forth then then you might actually identify there is like you know a collective entity of the zuzalus that that is that becomes the group and you name this group and all of sudden people inside can define themselves as pertaining to this group and people outside can identify people as pertaining to this group so you create by creating the name you're actually speaking this new collective entity into existence which is essentially a community of communities so that's step four once you have identified this community uh, now it becomes possible to pool resources in commons 
uh, not by just doing these bilateral support systems, but by actually everyone, if I have surplus, I don't need to go and fetch a particular community that needs my stuff. I'm just going to give it to this collective entity. And now this collective entity is managing a commons or a set of commons resources, which are collectively managed by all the community that have bought the resources in commons. Um, and of course, these, these start requiring a little bit of governance because now we need to know how to manage these common resources. And then step number six is that now that this collective entity has resources, then it can also organize into something that is capable of action in the world. And so that's when instead of having individual entities that are acting on their own behalf, now by pulling things together, this collective entity can act out of its own name and, of course, might have a larger impact because it is a larger entity. Uh, and then finally, number seven, uh, which I think is the most novel and in important one, is increase the interdependence between those different communities by interweaving, by entangling themselves, by sharing this type of equity with one another so that instead of being a box that, uh, that has lots of little community inside, but those community can always live. By interweaving together, it, it becomes this kind of like this basket where every single community that is part of this larger community is inherently interwoven with one another. And so, in fact, the exit cost becomes higher, but it's by increasing those exit costs that you're actually increasing, that you're changing the payoff structure and you're increasing the long-term sustainability. Because you can no longer rage quit. You can always quit, but it's harder because you're entangled. And so you will think twice before exiting. And you, you also, because of the interweaving, you will also have much more incentive to support every other community that is part of the same thing. Uh, because you're actually a little bit part of it too. And, and they are part of you. Right? And so this number seven is really the one that I think uh, significantly contribute to moving away from the tragedy of the commons and actually entering a completely different modality where uh, free riding is out of the picture and cooperation becomes the dominant strategy in order to have your own private uh, utility function to be maximized and the collective utility function to also be maximized. So that's the recipe. One, build a community. Two, identify resonating related community. Three, Encourage this community to support one another in a bilateral manner. Four, create a collective identity by naming it into existence. Five, pooling resources in commons so that they can be collectively managed. And six, organize into a group of collective, capable of collective action. And then seven, interweaving in order to increase interdependency and long-term sustainability. Fantastic. What was your takeaway from this? <laughs> you presenting the idea, collaborating with different people. Where do you see this going and how can get people involved with coordinations or? Yeah. So I think Zuzalu was fantastic. I extremely enjoyed both uh, our own work. So I brought a few people at Zuzalu in order to work on this. And, uh, but also we, we mixed a lot with many of the existing uh, Zuzalu residents. And it's actually really great because I think, in fact, I think we are all highly aligned on what we want. When we speak about network state, which is we want a more, a greater 
plurality of governance structure that are uh, more efficient than existing states and more decentralized and polycentric and less less focused on this one single territory. Uh, so I think everyone is aligned and many of the Zuzalu people, in fact, are very keen to explore those. For me, it was a, a very interesting surprise because I think I, I could see that they actually resonate much more. Most of the most of them, not everyone, of course, but many of the people I spoke with resonate much more with the notion of commons and with the notion of coordinations rather than Balaji's definition of network states. Um, and in fact, I think that many people did not resonate so much with Balaji's and, and some people were actually skeptic about network states and bringing them into the conversation and showing that there can be multiple recipes and we should actually not just focus on one, but quite to the contrary and not focus only on two. I think the coordination network state is just another recipe, but let's let's come up with hundreds of recipes if possible. Uh, so I think the Zuzalu crowd was actually very open and in fact, very inspired and uh, excited about the network state coordination track. And out of this, we actually created a little uh, group community task force. I don't know how to call it. Uh, and now we're really working on the more critical aspects in order to really uh, frame this concept of network state coordination or network sovereignties. Uh, we're still trying to figure out the right name for it. But yeah, things are actually moving forward. We have quite a, a intense community right now that is really trying to theorize with, of course, the idea eventually to operationalize. Um, but right now we're still digging into the details <laughs> of how to operationalize. So if anyone is interested in, uh, in joining this effort or in learning more, we have a few papers coming up. We have uh, one blog post that has recently been published on the uh, Harvard uh, blog. And, uh, and yeah, I think there will be a lot of stuff coming up in the coming months. Fantastic. Yeah, I organized the Network States and New Cities conference before, and it was a criticism that people weren't aware of these different approaches, which is partly or solely my fault. In my defense, I wasn't aware of your work yet. So it's great that Suzali was galvanizing or bringing together these different approaches, and this is kind of how we met. So I could learn about this as well and feature it on my podcast and hopefully in future events and make this a pluralistic and inclusive movement. So I'm very grateful that we got to have this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's funny is like, like a lot of people think that I'm like against biology. I'm actually not. Uh, in fact, it's this usual problem in which you have people that are, you know, there's like this long spectrum between the people that are like super pro existing, existing systems and existing states. And then the people that are trying to explore alternative things, which are on, on a different spectrum. Uh, and, and in some way, like, I think we are very close to one another, like Balaji included, in, in trying to explore alternatives. But because, of course, there are small disagreements among what those alternatives can be, then it feels that we're disagreeing with one another. But actually, we're so much in agreement if you compare the whole spectrum. And, and I think, in fact, we, we, need to, we need to recognize our alignment despite the differences in opinion and collaborate more uh, because this is still a very niche uh, thing, which I would love to, to become much more popularized and that more people start thinking about that and more people appreciate the need of experimenting with new types 
of uh, sovereignty structures. So yeah, we are, we're actually way more in agreement than, than most people think <laughs> with Balaji at least. And I hope that we can find ways to productively collaborate and explore all those different recipes together. Agree. I think intellectual diversity is a good thing. Some of the best possible things for a movement. I don't think environments where people are thinking too much alike or too reliant are good. I think you need to have productive tension and compare and contrast and try out different approaches. So again, I'm very grateful, Primavera, that we got to have this conversation. I got to learn much more about your work, but I'm probably just scratching the surface. I'm glad I got an introduction directly from you and I will load more in the future. And I'm pretty sure you're up to great things and many of those things or some of these things I hope to also be involved. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks to you for, uh, for inviting me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.